All right. I am now joined by another Ben, Ben Spielberg. Uh, for uh, for people who are unfamiliar with you, you want to uh, you want to say a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I uh, co-founded a political blog called Thirty Four Justice dot com and worked in policy analysis in DC for um, a think tank called the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities for a few years, working on economic and fiscal policy. Actually, worked really closely with. Um, a guy who's currently a member of Joe Biden's Council on Economic Advisors, Jared Bernstein, um, and then also uh, ran a local political campaign in Montgomery County, Maryland for the guy who's currently the county executive there. Um, so both uh, the, the policy and the politics lens really interest me. Um, I currently work in education, but uh, still try to, you know, stay in the political realm as much as I possibly can outside of work. Yeah, fair enough. So, um, okay, so there is one other thing that's that's unrelated that I want to ask you about uh, before we go, so please remind me if I forget, But because uh, I, I saw it on uh, Twitter earlier, and, and it was just a little bit too uh, germane to my interest not to ask about. But the main thing I wanted to talk to you about today uh, is uh, the unfortunately acronymed uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Um so this is something that like I've seen a lot of split even among sort of uh, you know progressive commentators who are often really skeptical of the Democratic Party and Joe Biden on uh with um you know with with some people like Ryan Grimm for example is somebody I've seen you know sort of say well you know it's not perfect but this is the you know biggest piece of climate spending ever you know this is a this is a good thing overall and i know you've got a much more skeptical view about this so can you just kind of start off start us off by laying out why yeah absolutely so i mean i think there's two kind of realms in which you can talk about it one is just the policy side and then one Mm -hmm. is the, the political side um, so I think it's first worth just talking about the policy and what mm-hmm. actually the Inflation Reduction Act does. Um, as you mentioned, uh, the the name of the bill implies that it's primarily about inflation reduction, um, but that's not actually really what it's about. I think the reason it's called the Inflation Reduction Act is because Joe Manchin made a big deal about inflation being the thing that he cared about for a very long time. So it was kind of structured in a way to, to let him talk about how he got a big win on that issue. Um, but uh, the bill really deals with three primary policy areas. There's taxes, there's health care, and there is climate. Um, the taxes side, I actually think you can build the biggest case that you have a substantial improvement on current mm-hmm. Uh, and the current trajectory, although it still uh, has some has some weak elements of it, but but there's some very strong pieces of it. So um, the the tax side, what the bill does is really three main things. Uh, the first is it imposes a 15% minimum tax on corporations, um, and what that means is you know through legal deductions, credits, etc., that are in the tax code. Right now, a lot of big corporations can evade federal tax liability because even though they're supposed to be paying a rate that is above 15 percent, when they take all those deductions and credits, it sometimes reduces their tax bill to zero or in some cases even below zero where the government owes them money. Um, What this would do is it would say you have to pay at least 15 percent for some of the largest companies that are out there. Um, now, some of the weak aspects of that particular piece are private equity was exempted from that. Um, there were also some provisions that exempted aspects of it for manufacturing uh, businesses. Um, so it doesn't apply across everybody, um, which I think is generally a problem when tax provisions do that. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece is I think you can definitely argue 15% is too low and it, it locks in a rate that is below really what it should be for some of these rich corporations. But given that we had some of them paying zero before, um, I do think you can make the case that this is an improvement. Um, The uh, second piece of the tax uh, legislation is uh, a 1% tax on stock buybacks. So this is when companies, rather than kind of investing 
their money in something productive, they basically just pay their shareholders by buying back their stock and increasing its value. Um, so there's now a, a small tax on that. And then uh, the third piece is there's a substantial amount of funding for the IRS. Um, and it's really mostly aimed at enforcement. The Treasury Department typically estimates that because of rich tax cheats, um, there are hundreds of billions of dollars that go uncollected that should be collected in taxes. So when I was talking before about the corporate minimum tax, that's really aimed at looking at kind of the legal stuff that you can do to lower your tax bill. The IRS funding is about there are people who are actually doing illegal stuff, um, probably even more than we know on taxes. Um, and the idea behind the IRS, the increased IRS funding is this will enable the IRS to do more audits of rich people who are cheating on their taxes. So those are kind of the three tax provisions. I would say that part of the bill, if that was the only thing that Democrats were doing, uh, it, I think it would be hard to argue it's not an improvement on current law, um, even though, again, it leaves a lot to be desired. And I think the question, of course, you'd be asking, which we'll talk more about, I'm sure, when we discuss the policy, is uh, how good is it relative to what could have been done or what Democrats say that they wanted to do? Um, but that's the tax piece. On the healthcare piece, um, there are really kind of two separate components of what the Inflation Reduction Act does. One is it extends subsidies for the exchanges um, that were created through the Affordable Care Act, where if you don't have insurance through your employer or you don't uh, have insurance through Medicaid, for example, you can buy private insurance on one of these exchanges that's set up by the government. Um, the, the subsidies which were created in the American Rescue Plan uh, right after Biden took office, um, yeah. they uh, are extended under this bill for a few years, meaning that um, what happens is the government pays some of the premium cost to the insurance company for you. So if you're buying one of these plans, depending on what your income is, your premiums are going to be lower uh, with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act than they might have been uh, if the Inflation Reduction Act didn't pass and you were on one of these exchange plans, uh, say, you know, in 2019. Um, the issue with that um, from a policy perspective and I think that this is the general issue with the whole Democrats build on the ACA approach yeah. is that the exchange plans are still really bad. So right. even with reduced premiums, people still do often, unless they're really low income, have to pay sometimes a couple thousand dollars a year, even if you make like $50,000 a year um, in premiums for these exchange plans. And the plans themselves have very high levels of cost sharing, really high deductibles, sometimes really high co-pays. So uh, if you're somebody who actually gets sick when you're using one of these plans, you still end up paying thousands of dollars um, for uh, for your care. Um, and the insurance company really isn't doing anything. They're just pocketing the premium costs that not just you, but now the government are paying them. So I think relative to an expansion of public insurance, which, uh, you know, I hope we talk a little bit more about later, because right. this was something that I think played a lot into the debate around what should Democrats do on the health care provisions. This mm -hmm. is definitely worse. It certainly provides some premium relief to people, but it's really expensive for the government and it still locks people into these plans that kind of suck on the exchanges. Um, and then the second piece are prescription drug provisions. Um, the prescription drug provisions, there's the ability for Medicare to negotiate on the, the prices of some drugs. There are some rebates if the costs of drugs rise faster than inflation. Yeah. There's a cap of out-of-pocket spending for Medicare so beneficiaries that they won't spend more than $2,000 a year on prescription drugs. Um, some of that stuff is, again, an improvement on what's currently the case, but it's restricted to Medicare it's very slow. It doesn't start until 2025 um, on the on the cap of out-of-pocket spending. The drug the, negotiation doesn't start the, until 2026. There's really no excuse for that. that. It's mostly just a giveaway to pharma um, that Democrats delayed it that long. And again, it's pretty small bore on uh, the, the pres prescription drug stuff. And then lastly, and sorry, I know I'm talking a lot, but um, on the policy front, um, the climate provisions, uh, that's kind of what's being touted as super historic yeah. um, and a real investment in, in solving the climate crisis. I think there's a couple issues with that narrative. One is it's much more an indictment of the U.S. not doing anything on this problem 
than it is kind of a positive reflection of what's in the bill. Um, and then secondly, um, there are kind of uh, the, the main policy thing that the bill does on climate is create tax credits and incentives right. um, for consumers and businesses to invest in clean energy. Um, yeah. I think that generally tax credits are a pretty inefficient way to try to incentivize the move to green energy. You should really be doing direct public investment rather than kind of slightly making things cheaper, which is what this does in a lot of cases um, for consumers and businesses to invest in. A lot of times, the people who take advantage of tax credits, they were going to do some of these investments anyway. I don't think they're very likely to change a ton of behavior except at the margins. Um, there are some tax credits that are not for particularly great stuff. There are a lot of concerns environmentalists have raised about for example, some of the carbon capture elements of the climate provisions and uh, the hydrogen um, incentives of the climate provisions. And then some of the consumer incentives, again, I think it's very funny that they're being sold as huge wins because, you know, they make small improvements to like a consumer incentive that already exists. The electric vehicle tax credit is my favorite example of that. Um, and then uh, the other piece is the climate provisions of the bill actually do some really bad stuff. So there's a provision that the government has to do oil and gas leases in order to pursue offshore wind development, um, which really locks in a dependence on fossil fuels. I think a lot of commentators have noted that the oil industry is very happy about this bill, um, mm -hmm. I think in part because of that provision. Then there's also a side deal that's reportedly been struck between Schumer and Manchin as a condition of passing the Inflation Reduction Act, which um, would kind of streamline permitting for projects. Specifically, there's a pipeline that goes through Appalachia called the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Um, so there's a lot of elements also of the climate provisions that would make things yeah. uh, worse or contribute in a negative way. Um, and when you look at the models, because there are a lot of models that have tried to look at the climate impact, they're really not nearly as rosy as they've been portrayed to be in the mainstream media. And there are some problems with them, too, which I'm happy to get more into. But that's kind of the policy piece. And I'll stop there because I know I've been talking for a long time. Uh, you know, you mentioned um, letting Medicare negotiate on uh, on some drug prices. And I just wanted to say, I mean, I'm sure you know the the finer details better than I do. But I mean, my understanding is that that's that sum is is a really important qualification here, right? Because people might hear that and sort of maybe get the impression that it just sort of generally lets Medicare negotiate on drug prices and maybe there are some exceptions or something like that. So like, what's, you know, can we hone in on that just for a second? Yeah, so in 2026, what the bill would do is it would allow uh, Medicare Part D to negotiate 10 uh, prices on 10 drugs. The secretary of the um, HHS they can uh, determine that there's kind of a process for them to determine that um, what those 10 drugs would be in 2026. And then it adds yeah. drugs each year after that. So there's 15 Medicare Part D drugs in 2027. There's another 15 that they can add in 2028 um, that are also including Medicare Part B. And then there's uh, 20 more that they can add in 2029. So you're absolutely right. If people think Medicare can negotiate the cost of all drugs, they can't. They can do 10 in 2026 and then add more in the few years after that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty pathetic. Um, okay, but uh, all right. So that was a really good overview of of the you know policy and what's, you know, what's like good uh and you know at least a substantial improvement over what exists now what's uh maybe not really that much of an improvement uh what on the climate part you know there um might actually in terms of the fossil fuel giveaways be be worse even if there are you know even if there are parts of it that are uh, that are you know going to be better and you could maybe make make a case that like overall uh it's uh it's it's a significant improvement uh, but, but I, I guess like stepping back from that a little bit, right. I mean, the, the sort of bigger question here is, cause I know this is like a lot of your complaint about the way that the IRA has been received, even in some like progressive media circles that is, is more of a, a kind of meta question about like, okay, how should, how should the left, um, react to this? Right. Cause, cause there's also, um, I mean, the, you know, like, 
the the kind of other side of like your overview of like what this does in policy terms uh, would just be thinking about what you know the fact that like as hard as it is to remember uh, what what this is is the sort of last kind of distorted remnant of uh of what long ago was promised to us as the uh the build back better agenda right which was uh i i wrote a article for jack a bit about this this was supposed to include uh universal pre-k and uh free community college uh the pro act was supposed to be in there you know etc 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 so um this is um you know to to put it mildly, right? This is this is not that. I mean, right? This has been this has been whittled down to to this like tiny percentage of that, and, and even that, in a different form and with some other stuff mixed in, and and so I, I I think your you know my sense is that like you know your larger complaint isn't even like about like okay, is this um, I don't know. I mean, I guess if you're like in Congress do, you know, do you vote for this because it's better than nothing? But like the larger question is more like, um, how is the left receiving this? Uh, is it a good idea to like celebrate like crumbs that are like this, this far from what we were originally promised? Is there like a failure strategy here? So you want to kind of speak to, to all of that and you can start wherever you want. Yeah, no, and I think that that is the key point. And I did like your piece in Jacobin, which kind of laid out the the evolution. And I think one of the things that you said there, and I was like, oh, Ben is one of the people who recognizes this with me because I feel like a lot of people aren't acknowledging this. Like this passage of the Inflation Reduction Act was predictable um, in the sense that back when Build Back Better was being discussed, and I think progressives made some very clear strategic mistakes last year when that was being discussed, I never thought, even though the media was reporting that Build Back Better is dead, that the Democrats aren't going to pass anything because they wanted to pass something. And I think they wanted to do it before the midterms so that they could claim it as a huge win. But what it, I think, made very likely is Democrats were going to get something very similar to what it is that they got, which is a dramatically scaled back version of what they were promised, as you mentioned, removed a ton of priorities, included a bunch of corporate giveaways and the few things that it did include in it. Um, and to me, that is, like you say, it's the key point. It's a it's a progressive strategy point. It's a social justice advocates. How do we actually use power and get change point? And I think it's a an ongoing conversation that those of us with these political inclinations need to engage in and think about because there are representatives in Congress who share many of our values. I think that that's right. definitely true. Um, and there's kind of two responses we've seen from those members of Congress. Um, I think the best response, even though I think still leaves a lot to be desired, has been from Bernie Sanders. Um, I think Pramila Jayapal's response has been really terrible. Um and then I think the response that we should have had is more kind of extreme than Bernie. But to to kind of summarize what they did, mm-hmm. Bernie basically said a lot of the stuff I said about the policy and said, this bill is not very good. It, it, it he, he said what you said about it taking a lot of priorities out, um, including giveaways. But then he said, you know, I'm going to vote for it because it, it brings us one small step forward, but uh, we need to start working right now and demanding more. And so I'm going to propose some amendments. I'm going to actually get up and say that it's not that great a bill. Um, so I think at least he was honest about the fact that the bill is not great and it's significantly gutted. Jayapal, uh, on the other hand, has really been running around celebrating this bill and uh, kind of acting like Democratic Party leadership, saying this is historic, Democrats had a huge win, this is amazing. Um, And to me, that rankles me way more because Mm -hmm. Jayapal's decision-making a year ago is a large part of the reason, I would say, that we ended up with a bill like this, because Mm -hmm. I think everybody knew that in the end, even if you did not give progressives what they were promised and what they said they would fight for, that progressives were going to get a, get behind it and support it anyway. And I think, you know, even for Bernie, I think that's yeah. true to a large extent. Like, I don't think anybody in the Senate actually thought Bernie was going to end up voting against this bill, which I can understand it because you can make the case again that tomorrow we have better provisions in the tax code. We have some clean energy incentives that may moderately adjust our path on climate change slightly below where it's currently going 
Um, and then we have some provisions that are likely to kick in that are going to make a difference on people's premiums and on drug prices down the line. So you can make that case that like tomorrow we'd be in a little bit of a better shape if you view today and tomorrow in a vacuum. But you shouldn't do that because this mm -hmm. conversation has been playing out for over a year, as you note, and uh, progressives could have gotten more. Like, I don't think either you or I operate with the assumption that Bernie Sanders uh, had, is the, actually the president and we're going right, to get right. the Bernie agenda or that we're going to get everything you and I want, given who is in Congress. But mm -hmm. could progressives have demanded and gotten something better than this? I think the evidence says very clearly that they could. And the fact that they're celebrating it right now, to me, is indicative of why they didn't. So there's a lot of institutional mm -hmm. obstacles against us, but I think we got to be clear-eyed about progressive strategy as part of the reason progressives are losing on some of this stuff. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So once we're in the position of um, does this does this bill get you know like like do you vote for this right now? I mean, I can understand it as as like a little bit more of a dilemma because. Um, you know, because you, uh, the, you know, I mean, killing this, uh, you know, killing this today, um, you know, seems like, well, it, it would, uh, it would prevent, you know, more, you know, more good things than bad things. It's, uh, it, you know, and, uh, probably would make, you know, a slaughter of the, uh, the Democrats in the, uh, in the midterms even more likely, et cetera. So I can at least understand the dilemma a little bit better, but like it seems like the real place to uh, play play hardball, I would think, right, was when uh, the original Build Back Better agenda was uh, was split into uh, the the part that was obviously you know never going to uh, never going to get the um, you know like was was. Uh, was sort of obviously doomed as soon as the split happened, right? And that became Build Back Better and the uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, right? Because because that just felt like, I mean, I remember like when that was announced that there was going to be this two track strategy and all of that stuff. I mean, just kind of feel like having this awful feeling. It's like this is, uh, you know, this is peanuts and the you know the football is being queued up again, you know, right? Like that the, yep. um, you know, because it's like this and and the whole. Um, Everybody's saying like, oh, don't worry. All of the big Democrats say that, you know, they're not going to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill until there's a vote on, you know, build back better. You know, just uh, I, I was just getting these like post-traumatic flashbacks, all the people who said they would vote against Obamacare if there was no public option. Exactly. Um, and, well, yeah. and I think that that's the key point, right, is, is progressives have done this for years where they come up and they take a stand and they say, we're not going to vote for Obamacare unless there's a public option or we're not going to vote for the infrastructure bill unless you pass Build Back Better. And then they do it anyway, which, again, signals like you don't actually have to take them seriously. You can do whatever you want. In the end, they're going to accept something as long as it's viewed as in that moment better than nothing. Um, so I think they're really eviscerating their power by signaling that ahead of time. And again, I mean, you're right. Like if you view it in a vacuum right now, you can understand why you would say we've got to accept this. But the problem with doing that is it doesn't operate in a vacuum right now. Everybody knew they were going to say we're going to accept this a year later, which is what enabled the bill to get terrible. Yeah, right. Um, so your so your view is that is that even now, right, you know, like like I mean, Bernie, which he, he totally could have because obviously, uh, you know, there's, there's no margin on this, you know, that like, uh, he should have, you know, like, like he should have killed this now. I think so. And I mean, my, my position actually on build back better was even back when three and a half trillion was the bill that Biden supposedly wanted, which I don't think was actually true. And again, I think right. you make some points in your piece about that. Um, but when three and a half trillion was the bill Biden ostensibly wanted, my thing was, look, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Biden during the campaign and when he's kind of written up his policy priorities has said that he supports a public option and he supports extending the Medicare age to at least 60. Those are actually meaningful expansions of public insurance that would represent uh, a big step along the way to 
uh, Medicare for all, which I think, you know, we believe in. So my view was if progressives say I will not vote for a bill unless we get Medicare extended to age 60 and or a robust public option, I would have said that's legitimate if they hold to that. Like if they say we'll get a bill with one of those two things in it and then they vote for a bill that doesn't contain some stuff that I really want in there and is pared down, but does contain those robust expansions of public insurance, I would have said defensible because you are getting uh, something along the lines of what we need in the long run. You're moving us meaningfully in that direction. And we know you're not going to get everything you want because you're not the the predominant group that's in power. Um, they didn't do that at the time. What they did instead was, as you kind of note, they made the three and a half trillion dollar package with a whole bunch of different stuff in it, some of which I thought was not constructed as well as it should have been their hill to die on. So right. I at that time wouldn't have even been crazy about them passing the three and a half trillion dollar bill, but that was the hill that they supposedly made that, that they were going to die on. So to me, once you pick the hill, you're going to die on, you have to die on it because if you don't, right. everybody knows you're a pushover. Yeah, no, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. All right. So I want to, um, you know, I want to be while we, while we still have a decent amount of time, uh, but I want to switch gears right now and ask you about something else that I wasn't, uh, I wasn't planning on talking about before. In fact, I don't, I don't know that I've seen you particularly talk about this before, but like oh, a couple cool. hours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, a couple hours ago, I, I happened to, to see an exchange on, uh, on Twitter that you were involved in. Um, and, um, and it was, uh, it was with Anna Kasparian and it was, it was about, uh, criminal justice reform basically. And, um, and then, you know, I, like it's, again, it's a little bit too, uh, you know, a little bit too germane to my interest not to ask about while I've got you on the phone. Sure. Yeah, no, I'm uh, cool. That sounds fun. Okay. Outstanding. All right. The, the starting point of uh, this discussion uh, was, um, you know, was a video that Anna had done on, on the Young Turks and your objections to that. But I, I don't want to go too granular to start with because I think um, for anybody who hasn't like watched the video and followed all the ins and outs of this, it's just not going to mean anything. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I, I, I do want to maybe just kind of start out with the, the broader, um, the broader issue. Right. Uh, so I think that, I think there's a concern that I know Anna has that, that I, I tend to share actually about, uh, left messaging, on on some of the stuff about uh, criminal justice reform, because I think um, I'm sure this isn't completely true. I think there were some like maybe policy disagreements that even came up a little bit in that exchange. But my suspicion is that everybody involved in this discussion would probably agree on most of the policy stuff. Right. In other words, I don't you know, I don't think anybody in the discussion is like, I don't know, pro mandatory minimums or, you know, uh, you know, against banning no knock raids or anything like that. Um, but, uh, but I think that, um, but I think there's a, there's a concern that, that can arise about how, uh, how we talk about this, right? Because, you know, I, I think that certainly if you look at the, at the polling data, right? I think that there's there's an ev- there's a lot of evidence that uh, most working class people, includes, including most working class people of color, uh, take concerns about crime and rising crime rates and all of that uh, pretty seriously, right? You know that this is this is like a this is a real issue, you know, for um, you know for a, a lot of um, a lot of people, right? You know that the um, that, uh, you know, could these kinds of concerns about public safety that, um, that, you know, I mean, are, um, you know, I, I think you and I would say, you know, it's sort of downstream of, of a, a brutal uh, economic order, right, you know, that, that leads right, to, right. Uh, that, that leads to all of this, right, but it's, uh, but the symptom, you know, the symptom itself is very real, right, and there's a, um, 
and and I think there's a there's a way that there are a lot of ways that I at least see uh, people who I generally agree with talk about this stuff that I find kind of unhelpful, right? Like that uh, that you know I'll see people react to people talking about you know crime rates, uh, you know upticks in crime rates by saying, uh, oh yeah, well it's still way lower than it was in the 1990s, which you know I I think. Um, I, I think sounds very dismissive in a very unhelpful way. Uh, there's, uh, I, you know, I, I think that some of the slogans people have used, I mean, ranging from like some of the the abolished stuff that like DSA passed, you know, back in like 2017 to um, up through, um, you know, even like, you know, even like the the defund slogan, which is a little bit ambiguous about what it means. You know, there are different ways to read that, but I think it. I, I think it it hits a lot of persuadable uh, voters the wrong way, right? Because because it sort of sounds like austerity, and you know you're just kind of on your own. Um, so so I, I I guess like one one entry point into the discussion would be like, how much do you think those are like you know legitimate concerns, or like how much do you think that like the the way that the left talks about this stuff right now is the way that we should talk about it. Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, I think I'm often hesitant to critique things like defund the police or abolition. And personally, you know, I would say that I do believe in police abolition. Um, But and it's partially just because I think oftentimes and I know that this is not the case with you, obviously, but I think Mm -hmm. that oftentimes there's a critiquing of progressive or social justice messaging that's actually a critique of the goal that's veiled as a messaging critique. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, what I appreciate about people in the abolition movement and in the defund movement is that they've really brought this issue into the public consciousness in a way that's hard to ignore. Um, and I think there can sometimes be value in using kind of inflammatory language, you know, like abolish ice, I think is a good example of mm-hmm. something that again, you could, you could argue it turns people off, but it also really, I think, brought to the forefront a lot of issues that needed to, to be discussed in a different way. Um, and I think there have been some wins also, if you look at a, from a policy standpoint at, at local jurisdictions, dealing with people who have used some of that language, some of them have responded in terms of actually reallocating portions of their budget or uh, rethinking their relationship with, with police forces. So um, I think I'm a little less critical of the wording, but what I do agree on and what I think is legitimate is there's a real concern here that people have, which is their safety. Like you want to walk down the street and you want to know that, I am not going to be assaulted and like feel comfortable walking down the street. Um, And I think people also want to know that if something does happen to me, I want to have somebody to call. And I think the, the problem in my view with how we've often Uh approached these issues as a social justice movement is it's focused largely on explaining the very true point that the police and the criminal legal system don't tend to make us safer. There's a lot of research behind that. It's true that usually when you call the police, they don't really provide much help. Like all of that's true. And I think it's an important point to make, but it doesn't answer the question for somebody who's concerned about this stuff. And like you said, persuadable people of like, what do I do? Who do I call? How do I know that I'm going to feel safe? And I think you have to have a response to those sorts of questions if you really want people to be persuaded, it's not enough to just say the system that we have sucks and we need a totally different economic order. You need to say, well, here's what should be happening instead. And here's what we can see, because what you'll see when you do have those conversations. And I think like um, the the victims rights movement, I don't love the word victim and I don't love the word criminal. Mm-hmm. The victim rights movement, I think, is really interesting and it's because like when you ask people who have been harmed by crime, what they want to see, if you give them alternatives to incarceration, things like a restorative approach where they're involved in thinking through what the harm reparation method is, they tend to like that way better than like a draconian prison sentence. Not everybody, but like most people who have been harmed by crime, they don't just want you lock somebody away for life. And that's the end of the story. 
Um, they actually want something that actually helps repair what happened to them. So I really think there's got to be more of a focus on concrete solutions in these in these debates. I think it's super important to point out the problems with the narrative. And, you know, my issue with Anna's uh, uh, presentation and, and her uh, segment that she did was it really bought into these very uh, privileged defending tropes that you often see from people who oppose all of the policies that, you know, hopefully she does agree about many of the policies. But there was a lot of language and framing that really mirrors people who are opponents of this movement. So I think that people who recognize that there may be a problem with aspects of how sometimes we engage on this issue as social justice advocates just need to be really intentional and thoughtful about how we bring up and talk about that problem ourselves. Okay. Yeah. So that was really interesting. Uh, I'm glad you said the thing about criminals because that was actually the, the tweet that caught my eye this morning was, was when you, you objected to her, her using that word. I definitely want to talk about that, but, um, but you know, I, I think, uh, okay. So, I mean, just to, just to lay some of my own cards on the on the table about this, right? I, I think, um, you know, I certainly think that we could have a. I mean, I'm 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 sympathetic. You know, I wouldn't claim to be anything like an expert on it, but I'm, you know, from what I know about it, I'm I'm quite sympathetic to to some of the restorative justice stuff you talked about. Uh, I had a good conversation on here with Ryan Lake about that a while back. Um, I I think. Um, you know, I certainly think that if it was, you know, done in combination with uh, moves towards a more economically equal society, so we wouldn't have, um, you know, people wouldn't be as spooked about crime in the uh, in the first place. Uh, I, I certainly think we could have like a vastly more sort of humane and rehabilitation focused, um, you know, criminal justice system um, without that leading to, you know, to really bad results, right? I mean, I, I think that um, an analogy, I think that Annie even used somewhere in there, I don't actually remember. I watched the whole segment you're talking about. I also talked to her about this on my, you know, the main show on YouTube on on Monday night, so it's all kind of jumbled together, but I'm, I'm pretty sure Norway came up in, you know, one or both of those, I don't remember. Um, and, you know, and, and I do think that, uh, that that's, a, that's a good model, right? In other words, like, I think it's like good sort of real-life proof that you could have a more humane and rehabilitation focused criminal justice system and also a much lower rate of violent crime than the United States, uh, you know, that you, you can have both, uh, at least given, um, at least given better, you know, material conditions, right. You'll lead into, to less crime. I'm, I'm completely down with all of that. Uh, but I, I guess, um, one, Okay, so there's like the rhetoric part of the policy part, and I want to talk about both, and you know, and 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 um, you know, and, and I want to do it all, you know, in a uh, in a relatively uh, you know relatively concise way, or at least I'm really going to try. So uh, so let's, you know, on um, on the you know the rhetoric part. I mean, the, the sort of concern I have about saying like, oh, don't call people, you know, don't call people who you know maybe you know, incarcerated for murder or rape or et cetera, uh, violent criminals, uh, I, I worry can be a little, you know, come off as a little tone, tone deaf, right? I mean, like, because people, you know, you sort of talked about privilege defending, but I mean, like the, um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, there, there is a certain sense in which, like, it is a privilege, uh, you know, it is a position of privilege to not really have to worry uh, about um, about street level violence, you know, in the way that you don't really have to worry about it that much uh, if you uh, if you live, you know, in a uh, in a middle class kind of neighborhood, you know, where and um, and there are, you know, again, so I, I worry about minimizing the concern, but I don't want to focus too much on that because I think that the, you know, the more interesting question may be is is on uh some of the policy goal stuff right because it's like look do i think we could get to norway absolutely uh do you know do i think that if we had a completely different economic system then like further down the line we could go even further in the, that direction yeah do i think that we could ever get to the point where uh you know you like it wouldn't make sense you know you like when you talk about like police abolition or prison abolition, right? You know that they that um, 
that there wouldn't be somebody that you would call in the instance of you know if if uh, if something violent happens that there wouldn't be some mechanism to remove people who are you know who are violent uh, from society. I'm I'm somewhat skeptical about that, frankly, even in a sort of like 23rd century, you know, full communism sort of uh, sort of sort of scenario. But like, I think the more uh, can, would I, it... can, I, um, can I interject on on sure, the sure. point there before sure, you go sure. further on that, just sure. because yep. you know I think the the people who are violent and the and the kind of violent criminals piece I think are related in a way, just because what I would say is people are more complex than that. So, and we have lots of people in our society who we don't label violent or violent criminals who perpetrate far more violence against others. I think you and I would probably agree about that, but you know, there are high level people who orchestrate violence against whole communities when they make policy decisions. Um, And then there are people who harm others, but because they live in areas that aren't particularly uh, policed, they sometimes don't uh, have their violence uh, result in prison time. Um, now, obviously, murder is a very extreme case, but even if you just look at kind of police officers involved in officer-involved shootings and people who might be uh, oftentimes lower income who have murdered somebody, uh, the way that we talk about those as a society is very different in a way that I do, I do think creates a problematic frame for the issue because police violence is still violence. So unless oh, you're walking yeah, I, around calling it, right. I, mean, and I, I know com- you don't I, disagree. I, I, I completely agree with that. Although one way to maybe sort of, um, you know, turn that around a little bit is that I think that, uh, I think that, uh, that cops who, uh, who shoot people without justification, you know, should be. You'd call uh, them violence too. Yeah, I'd call them violent criminals too. And like also to put an even finer point on that, I mean, I think it's I think it's really important that we that we imprison, right? Cops who uh who you know, cops who are uh you know engaged in unjustified uh shootings, right? I mean when um Aaron Wilson was uh was was convicted, right? I mean I wrote an article in, in Jacobin saying, you know, I mean maybe it's kind of a hyperbolic headline because it's a it's a very small victory, right? You know, but that it, the uh, conviction was a victory for justice and democracy, you know, meaning that like, I think that it's bad for democracy if state officials can get away with crimes and, and not be punished, right? That the, uh, that um, it's important that that, you know, it's important that that, that that happened, right? Uh, I, I do want to, if it's okay, I do want to go back to something you said, you said a few minutes ago, because I, I actually think yeah. it's like a, re- a really interesting way to frame the discussion, which is that you use, you sort of made an analogy to the, uh, the abolish ice slogan. Yeah. And, um, and, and I guess where I would see a disanalogy between abolish ice and abolish the police is that I find very often, and maybe this is unfair, this is anecdotal, right? But I find very often when I talk to people, who do use slogans like abolish the police uh, that they um, that like some of those follow-up questions that I think you were rightly raising earlier, right. You know, about how that plays out in practice. Oftentimes it doesn't really feel like, you know, people have some things to say about it. Like here's a, you know, like, like here's a program that, you know, that does some good, et cetera, that doesn't involve any policing, but like the idea that there's a sort of, uh, you know, global, uh, replacement uh, that they, you know, like, like I, I often, I often get this uncomfortable sense, you know, reading these people that they, um, that they're really, you know, there really aren't good, so, you know, good, like fully fleshed out answers to those questions. And oftentimes when pressed on them, right, people will say things like, well, uh, you know, we can't do it overnight or something like that, which one, I, I think if if you can't do it overnight, I, I you know I sort of think you're making you know analogy to to abolish slavery, where like the whole reason nobody would call when a Republican then you're getting a muddled. I heard can't abolish it overnight. Which you know I I sort of think well if so you know if what you really mean is try to gradually phase it out over time and you're not even totally sure what that would look like but like maybe someday have as a very long term horizon you could have a society without a need for it I I think the word abolish is poorly chosen but I also um, I also think like in the ICE case right the difference to my mind with ICE is that no literally. 
I actually, I actually do want to abolish you ice. Like, you know, we could do without ice, like in the in the short term. Like we could, like that that could be a very rapid transition to ice not existing, right? I think that you can have. Um, I mean, one, it hasn't existed for uh, for very long. But like, also, like I, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to be too lean too hard on that because uh, taken literally, that makes it sound like I think the INS was fine, which I don't, right? You know, but like, I, I think, I, you know, I actually don't think a free society needs to have a um, a policing um, branch that purely exists to round up otherwise otherwise law abiding people for for just like being in the country without permission, right? Like, I don't, I don't think that's a that's a I don't think that's a function we need to have, right? I think that they, you know, you can probably find a few legitimate functions of ICE, you know, and you can have other law enforcement agencies do those, but like ICE itself, right? The sort of core mission is a mission that I don't think would exist. And I think we could actually, uh, we could actually just, just do away with the agency without changing very much else. And, uh, and that would be okay. And in that case, I feel like there's a sort of clear enough, um, there's a sort of clear enough vision for what abolishing it would mean. And there's a, uh, and, and there's a sort of clear, you know, and there's this like very clear moral case. Uh, and it's, I, I think it's even easy to, to understand that. Right. Like, and, and which is not to say that it's necessarily popular or you don't necessarily have an uphill battle, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of willing to, I'm kind of willing to wage that uphill battle. Right? Whereas in the, in the case of abolishing the police, I think that, I think most, you know, I mean, there are polls where, like, black voters specifically are asked, like, do you think the police presence in your neighborhood is about, is too much, too little, or about right, right? And the one that's always the least popular option is uh, is too much, right? Because even though people are perfectly aware that cops can be racist and abusive and horrible in many, many ways, the idea of taking that away... God. Yeah, exactly. The idea of taking that away sounds, you know, still still sounds worse and you know and i think certainly if you took it away under present material conditions i mean that that sounds really bad i mean that sounds like um you know that sounds uncomfortably like you know a sort of libertarian dystopia where there's like uh you know private security for people who can afford it and and nothing you know for everybody else yep yeah well so and i actually i think those are very legitimate points um so and i'll say a couple things about them so first that's a very different discussion than what Anna had in her segment. And I think you're able to make that critique of uh, the uh, approach of the abolition or defund uh, group or about the, the rhetoric without falling into stereotypical arguments uh, that really support the tough on crime narrative that has led to the massive problems with incarceration and targeting of, of poor people and often black people um, in America with these policies. So I, I think there's a way to do it. And I think you did it in a way that is, I think, much more reasonable and, and worthy of, of discussion. Um, the other piece that I would note is when you talk about the polls, you're absolutely right that that's typically what you see. I think part of it is because they're not presented with an alternative, either in terms of use of that money. So if you asked them, would you rather spend this $300, $400 million on police or would you rather take that money and invest it into housing or healthcare? I think you'd have different poll results. Um, I also think you'd have different poll results if you said, hey, rather than police, you're going to have people who are trained in, in de-escalation of violent conflict, but who aren't carrying a gun and who are members of your community who you know and who you have experience with. Like, there would be a very different response to that as well, I believe. Um, so I think we often aren't asking people the right questions in these surveys. Now, to your point about the long-term piece, this is something that I would say is my biggest critique of mm. uh, the, the abolition movement as well, um, which again, I would say I'm a part of, right? I believe in in abolition and I hear you on on the word maybe being different if you don't think it can happen tomorrow because it cannot happen tomorrow. And I think it is very distinct from an issue like uh, Medicare for All, like we were talking about before, where when I talk about Medicare for All, I have the policy path. I can hand it to you mm -hmm. and do it right now. And as you note, for the, the police abolition movement, we cannot do it right now, right? Like if you were to get rid of the police, 
right now without putting a whole bunch of other things in place, you are going to have a situation where a lot of people feel and are way less safe. Um, even though the police don't do a great job of keeping us safe, it just creates a problem where you're going to have so much backlash that you're probably going to have an increased police response. And I think most thoughtful, like increased calls for the police and people saying, hey, obviously the abolition movement doesn't work because we got rid of the police and then we had these disaster situations happen. Um, so, so I think that needs to be a lot more thoughtful in terms of some of the discussions people have. What I will say is in talking to a lot of abolitionists, I do think that they're very clear on that point. And I'll just note, you know, I, so my work is totally separate from the policy sure. advocacy idea. Um, but I will say, like, this is an issue I work on in our school district now. And it is something where I've been very clear about as we talk about it as a school district. You need to have something that's really implementable when we make any sort of transition. We can't do this thing, with which a lot of districts have done, where you produce a 20-page report that says the research about why the police are bad and why the prison system is bad, and then has a paragraph saying, and that's why you need to make this policy change, but has no implementation guidance, because that predictably results in situations occurring that people say, if only we had the police, that situation would have been handled differently. I might argue with them about that, but it's an understandable response to the situation if you don't have a clearly thought through plan in place. So I do think that that's something that definitely needs to happen and needs to be part of the discussion. And people do need to be nuanced about that. I just think it's a much bigger threat when you have people who are either nominally progressive or actually progressive making arguments that suggest that the people who are the targets of criminal legal system policy right now are distinct from everybody else in a way that is horrible and need to be locked up for a very long period of time in our inhumane conditions. Um, I think that that's much more concerning to me than the fact that the you know abolition and defund movement sometimes isn't as nuanced as they need to be. Yeah, so... Uh... All right. I do want to wrap up because because I, I do have another time commitment in a few minutes, but I, I do want to just maybe right. say a few things, a few things about that. And then and then like, you know, and then let you, you know, probably respond and probably have the uh, the the last word. Um, and um, and then, you know, then maybe we can talk about this, you know, another time, which I would actually enjoy. I think I've been um, I think it's been a good, good discussion. So, um, uh Okay, so so one thing is on this this I, you know, I am I I think, you know, like in your vision as I got it just now of like sort of what the alternative is. Say, well, there's still somebody sort of patrolling, or you can call, but they're not armed. They're people in your community. Um, I I think that if you uh, have a like. I mean, the not armed part, I'm sympathetic to. I think it would probably have to be packaged together with some kind of gun control, right? You know, because I think if there are, if you have a situation where you, um, you know, you have like, God, I don't even remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I mean, we certainly have more guns than people in the, uh, in the United States. Uh, it's, it's a kind of absurdly well-armed, you know, society. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think it'd be very, very, it'd be very difficult to, to sell most people on a transition to, uh, to totally unarmed, uh, or, you know, even mostly unarmed law enforcement, right? I mean, it could be like, you know, there are certainly countries in, um, you know, like the UK or France where like, local beat cops don't generally carry guns um as a matter of course and i think that's a good thing right i think that's i think those are those uh, i think that's a good goal right to uh to to aspire to as a society right but i think it'd be very hard to sell uh most people on that you know without a general reduction in the sort of uh level of guns in the society the part of your community part i mean i i kind of have more questions about because um i i also worry that like if you know, if you're talking about going from having like a sort of professionalized body where like this is people's job, they, they draw a public paycheck to, you know, something more like sort of um, informal, you know, community, uh, you know, patrols or something that they have a I, I wonder, I wonder if that's going to get the effect that we want. Right. Like, cause, cause, and that's actually you know. not what I'm suggesting. I'm more okay. suggesting. It's a community-driven process for selecting those people rather than a body that sits separate. 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I'm, um, I think I'm sympathetic to that. I mean, I think that the, um, you know, I, I think certainly, you know, like I think having, um, I think having people who live in, in communities have more democratic control over, over who is, who's hired, right. For, uh, for law enforcement and certainly who's fired, which is like a short term reform we could do like immediately with like giving like sort of community review boards, real teeth about that, um, is, is is definitely a um is definitely a good thing right you know i i just you know i wanted to make the point about the sort of more uh you know informal uh kind of community patrol stuff because i think sometimes people who are very hot on police abolitionism do do kind of um uh, end up um end up oh That was interesting. Uh, this is the this is the danger of having the uh, the mic unplugged. That I've, I've just you know my my cheek will just randomly turn on things in the background. But anyway, uh, the uh, that's uh, the other you know I think sometimes people are very hot in police abolitionism do go there, and I think that's a you know I think that's a mistake, right? Because I mean, in, in fact, I think we've seen that like sort of you know neighborhood watch can you know act a lot like you know police can in in really bad ways right but um but i think uh so that's so that's one thing uh so uh so so i think yeah i have certain concerns but i th- i think i'm broadly sympathetic to some of what you're saying about all of that um i am a little bit more skeptical about this idea that the the polls are just asking the wrong question i mean i'm all for more granular polling but you know, there there was uh, something Anna brought up uh, when she was on my show. Uh, is is there was that uh, there was like a ballot initiative in uh, Minneapolis, uh, you know, last year that that would have specifically um, uh, that would have replaced the city's police department with something they were going to call Department of Public Safety. Uh, I, I wouldn't claim to know all of the details of what was being proposed, but I know that the the sort of pitch was that it was public health, you know, oriented and, and that was, you know, and that was defeated and, and, and really specifically like a great majority of black voters, uh, you know, rejected that. Right. So I think that's, that's at least some reason to be, you know, to be a little bit skeptical, uh, that the, you know, that if, if we ask the more granular questions, you know, we get the answers that, uh, that, that, you know, the defund or abolish advocates might, you know, might want, but then like, I guess the last, the last thing I just want to say, and then, you know, and then if you, you know, I'll, I'll just let you respond however you want. And we'll probably, uh, we'll probably call it a day for that because I am running late for my next thing, but the, uh, and I really appreciate your time. But, um, the last thing, you know, that I, I think I'd say about this is just like, I don't actually see like, like in that, in that video, right? Like I didn't actually see Anna say like, you know, we need, um, you know, we need long sentences, right? I mean, the sort of specific case that she was talking about was somebody who, um, you know, somebody whose who sentence um, whose sentence was six months, and then for reasons that are a little unclear, they they got off the the next day, right? I mean, that's that's not, you know, we're not talking about like whether it's okay to you know sentence somebody to you know ten years instead of twenty to life, you know, uh, the uh, the that that seems you know, that seems like maybe not the issue. And I do think, um, you know, I, 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 I do think that, uh, I mean, I, I will just kind of lean on, on the fact that I, I know Anna and, you know, pretty well. And I think that she, uh, I am very confident, you know, that she supports a lot of the, uh, the, you know, the reforms that, that we're talking about. But I mean, I guess when I see people have a response that's quite that negative to sort of saying like, Hey, uh, this is a legitimate concern if like somebody, um, you know, if, if somebody has committed violent crimes and somehow they're, you know, somehow they're um, being sentenced to six months and let out after a day, you know, I mean, like this is not, um, you know, I, I think at the very least, right, like maybe you have real policy disagreements with her. I mean, I, I saw, I did see in the Twitter exchange, you know, I, th- I think there might be an actual disagreement about that uh ballot initiative in uh, California for early release and who should qualify for that. And I think that's a discussion worth having, but I mean, I guess my, um, you know, I guess my, my big, um, you know, I, I guess, I guess like the only point I'm, I'm making at the end here is just like, 
I do think it's worth kind of starting the discussion from a sort of baseline of, of kind of giving each other credit that we are, you know, pretty much on the same team on this, right? I mean, that they, but then like, there's a question of like, how are we going to address these concerns? And like, are there things maybe even on the local level that are happening or unhelpful? And, you know, like, like that's, I, I think those were all things that we can kind of hash out without sort of, you know, without sort of thinking anybody is, you know, I don't know, Hillary Clinton in the 90s talking about super predators. Yeah. And, you know, and I will say, look, I don't know Anna personally, but I've seen her stuff before. And I know that on many issues, she is really good. Um, and so I tried to be pretty fair in, in my responses to, to her video. I mean, I critiqued the video hard in the places that I thought it missed, but um, I'm definitely open to the the fact and hoping that there's more areas of agreement than disagreement. I'll note also, you know, there's a, I don't know if you know Leighton Woodhouse, but uh, he and I are currently debating on Glenn Greenwald's blog, The Chase of Boudin Recall. Um, and he's another person who mm-hmm. I think we do have some real policy d- disagreements, but he's somebody who I'd like to believe on many of these issues. We do have some areas of agreement. The thing that I'll note though about uh, the Anna video and about that debate with Leighton that I'm having right now that I do think I notice sometimes in these things, it's very hard to pin down exactly what they are recommending because it's one thing to say, I agree the prison system's humane and I agree people should be rehabilitated. And I don't think this should have happened to this person without telling us what you think should have given the systems that we have in place. And I think that that's, that was one of my critiques of Anna's video. I don't know what she thinks we should have done to that person because if she's right that the system doesn't rehabilitate people and that person until they get rehabilitated is going to be dangerous, why would six months be an appropriate sentence? Um, Her video also didn't go into for that person, uh, like what exactly it is that they did. There were charges that were listed, but I think like a narrative description of what that person did would have been really helpful because charges are often trumped up. So anyway, I would be totally willing to have that conversation. And I think it is really important to your point to have that conversation with people who are progressive, who have a different perspective on this issue. Um, but I, I, again, I think my issue with the video and things like it is they often, if you're having that discussion in a way that reinforces a lot of privilege defending narratives about the criminal legal system, I think that is a problem. Um, and then on the polls, I totally hear you. And I don't know all the specifics of that Minneapolis initiative either, but you are right. I think it passed with almost 60%. I mean, it failed with almost 60% um, opposed to it. Um, What I would say is I think that, uh, so you may be right that right now, if I ask the question, depending on how I ask the question and what I'm proposing, I won't necessarily get to majority support. I think what I'm saying more is if over time we have an education campaign around this issue and help people understand that you're not talking about, you're not going to have any support, you're talking about a re-envisioning of public safety, I think you will eventually get to a place where most people do support that because I think it's a pretty reasonable thing if you are able to answer the questions of like, what does public safety look like? Um, which I think we would all agree police is a very small part of. Um, so I think we could get there. And there are a number of issues, you know, where at at a specific point in recent history, even like take gay marriage as one example, weed legalization as another, that the public was generally opposed that has now come along and supports overwhelmingly, I think because of uh, the work people have done to help to help educate people on those issues. Yeah, and I, I know I, I said I'd uh, give you the last word. I would just point out that the uh, on uh, weed legalization and gay marriage, uh, I, I think part of the reason that shift was able to happen is that we were able to make a convincing case that nothing bad would happen as a uh, as a result of either one of them. Right? I, I think that the, um, I mean, I I, I think. Uh, I, I think maybe to end on a note of uh, of agreement, right? I mean, I think that the if um, the you know like public safety arrangements that we have right now suck in many ways, right? Is uh, is something uh, is something that's certainly undeniably true. But I, I, I think if we're going to sell people on something something different, I, I do think we need a, a sort of um, fleshed out conception of what the different thing looks like that doesn't make people worried that, you know, I mean, again, all these obvious follow-up questions like, okay, you know, 
what if, you know, there's the woman down the street who's, you know, abusive boyfriend is, you know, uh, is, is probably going to come around the second he gets out, you know, like, like what's the, what's the plan. Right. And I'm not saying there aren't answers, but I, I think there needs to be, um, you know, I think you need to have answers to, uh, to win the argument, but, um, unless there's anything you want to say to that specifically. No. Uh, so all I would say on that is I do agree. You need answers to win the argument. Part of the discussion should note that right now there's not a good answer to that with the police in place, right? Like generally the police don't do a great job of helping with that situation, but you're absolutely right that like, if you want to make the change, you got to give somebody more than just that as your response. Yeah. All right. Um, this is good, Ben. Uh, so I was when I asked you to come on, I was just planning to have you on to talk about the thing that we agree about, which is the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, it was literally just like a couple hours ago, like actually just before I made the call-in link uh, for the episode that I saw that Twitter exchange. I was like, oh, I should I should ask Ben about that uh, while we're on. And so I think given that I gave you no warning whatsoever <laughs> that we were going to have this discussion, uh, especially, so it would be it would be possible to feel sort of ambushed about this. I think this is actually a really useful discussion. I hope we can continue it. Uh, do you uh, do you want to uh, plug anything that people should check out before we go? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Ben Spielberg. And again, my blog is 34justice.com. And really appreciate you having me, Ben. And no worries at all. I, uh, I knew it would come from a good place and enjoyed discussing it with you. All right. Thank you so much. Bye.